Good morning. Welcome again to South Baton Rouge. We're glad to have you this morning. Um, this fall, um, if you're visiting with us this morning, um, or maybe you've forgotten, um, this fall we've been methodically working our way uh, through the letter of James, um, just a section of verses at a time. And this morning we're going to be looking at five brief verses that come at the end of James chapter 4, which is James 4, 13 through 17. So if you want to turn there in your Bible, go ahead and do that now, or you can find the passage printed for you in your bulletin. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read that for us. And then we'll pray and ask for God's help, and then we'll begin talking about these verses. So, let's give our attention now to God's holy and inerrant word. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before Him now and ask for His help as we look at this passage. Gracious Heavenly Father, um, thank You that we have time to come together to sit beneath the reading and the teaching and preaching of Your Word. Um, And Father, we confess even as we begin that You know each and every one of us. You know those of us who have come to this place this morning with great sadness and sorrow in our hearts. You know those of us who are struggling hard uh, with ourselves and even struggling and wrestling with You. You know those of us who come and are excited and glad to be with Your people and those who might even find themselves surprised to find themselves in a church today. Um, You know those of us who believe and those who are struggling to believe. You know those of us who have doubts and are skeptical. Um, And Father, we pray this morning as we sit beneath Your Word that You would remind us that though we're all individuals and we come into this room bearing a number of different things, that beneath it all, we're really all the same. Because the truth is that we are all far more broken. uh, Far more broken than we could ever really imagine. And so together we need you to, by your Spirit, lift our eyes in order that we might see Jesus. In order that we might be reminded that though we are far more broken than we could ever imagine, we are also, because of His person and work, far more loved, far more accepted, far more approved of and delighted in than we could ever dare to dream. And Father, it's our prayer that that good news proclaimed to us this morning would change and transform us. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 
The journalist and author Irma Bombeck, um, she once shared an observation uh, from an experience that she had in a church, and this is what she wrote. Um, In church the other Sunday, I was intent on a small child who was turning around and smiling at everyone. He wasn't gurgling, spitting, humming, kicking, tearing the hymnals, or rummaging through his mother's handbag. He was just smiling. Finally, his mother jerked him about, and in a stage whisper that could be heard in a little theater off Broadway said, Stop that grinning. You're in church. And with that, she gave him a belt, and as the tears rolled down his cheeks, added, That's better, and returned to her prayers. Um, On the surface, I think, that's kind of how this passage that we read from James chapter 4 feels. Like all of a sudden, James is belting us, or at least elbowing us in the ribs, or something like that. You know, stop smiling. This is the Christian life. Um, And he's writing about something all of us do in life. Um, We make plans. We'll go here, we'll spend this much time, we'll make some money, etc. Plans, that's what he's talking about in these verses. And he's not even talking about the danger of money. Um, That's where he goes next at the beginning of chapter 5. But he's just talking about our planning. And he could have easily said something like, um, you say to yourself, I'm going to graduate college and I'm going to move to Baton Rouge and I'm going to get a job. Or he could have said, we'll get married, we'll do a little traveling, and then we'll start trying to have kids. Plans. You know, or I'll finish my MBA, I'll I'll take this class online for three years, and I'll graduate, and I'll get promoted and move up in my career um, in the company. Um, Plans. Every single one of us makes plans. It's an unavoidable part of life. But then James is elbowing us in the ribs, as it were, and he's talking about our planning being boasting and arrogance and evil. And you know, at least when I first read this passage, it's kind of like, yikes. Somebody woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning, you know. Um, somebody need a Snickers bar or something like that? Um, and we might, and some of us might even think, you know, yeah, this is what I don't like about Christianity. Um, or this is what maybe embarrasses me about Christianity, you know, sit up straight, stop smiling, be spiritual, stop dreaming, stop planning, not just to kill joy, but somewhat unrealistic. Um, now, having said all that, before we write James off, everything I've said up to this point is a very surface understanding of what James is actually talking about in these verses, because he is going actually far deeper than that. Um, And his points are much more complex, much more nuanced and detailed and really contoured to fit the reality of our lives and the plans that we make. See, he's not saying all planning is evil or, or even that it's avoidable. We all plan. But he wants us to take a look at our hearts and to examine a deeper, darker side, perhaps, to our planning. And he also wants us to show in these verses how our planning can be redeemed and how in the light of the gospel we can really find freedom 
to plan, and to live. Um, Let me finish that quote from Irma Bombeck that I started because she did write on and she said this. Suddenly, I was angry. It occurred to me that the entire world is in tears. And if you're not, then you'd better get with it. I wanted to grab this child with the tear-stained face close to me and tell him about my God, the smiling God. If he couldn't smile in church, where was there left to go? And listen, ultimately, I think even though these verses at first sound very harsh to us, that's exactly where James wants to lead us. He wants to lead us to the smiling God who delights in His children, who loves His children. So, let's talk about three things. I want to talk about what we bring to our planning. And then I want us to talk about the arrogant evil in our planning. And then finally, I want us to talk about how our planning can be redeemed. Okay, so first, what we bring to our planning. Here's what I'm talking about. What is it that in our lives that informs our desires to plan? What are the instincts uh, behind our planning? What's going, on our in, what's going on in our hearts when we're making plans? Um, now, I need you to give me a little bit of room with this first point because I kind of need to set things up to give you a good sense of what James was saying here. Um, a few years ago, one of my daughters... Um, got lost in school just a couple of weeks after she started kindergarten. It was a big school, a thousand kids in that school. And she got lost a couple of weeks after kindergarten started. And she was in this new, this big, confusing place. And she got separated from her class. I think they had gone to the gym and the class was supposed to go back to their room after that. And she got separated. And she found herself just completely alone in this unfamiliar hallway, not knowing where to go. And so eventually standing in the hall all by herself and crying, a teacher came, came by and rescued her, right? And brought her to her class and got her back um, in her class. And at home later that afternoon, she told us this story of her tears and her crying in the hallway and of being alone. And so naturally we asked her, were you scared? And she said, no, she wasn't scared. And so we asked her what I think was the obvious follow-up question to that, which was, why were you crying then? And she caught us off guard with a a bit more sophisticated response than we had expected from a a five-year-old. You know what she said? She said, I was sad because I was all alone. And I was sad because no one was looking for me. And just like that, our hearts broke, right? And if your heart doesn't engage with that at some level, (laughs) something's wrong with you. Um, But let me, why do our hearts so quickly engage, not just when we hear about a little girl who's been lost, but a little girl feeling forgotten? 
uh, not missed, unlooked for, all alone. Here's, here's what I want to suggest to you this morning. Our hearts engage with that because the moment every one of us was born, we woke up into a broken world feeling just like that. Lauren Easley, in the 1970s, coined a great phrase to describe the human experience. He called man the cosmic orphan, homeless, adrift, alone, forgotten, orphaned. You know, cosmic orphans, they're born with a sense that they've been forgotten, that they're left alone, they're even abandoned, they're, they're all alone and adrift in the universe. And feeling vulnerable and alone, we feel like we, feel like we have to fend for ourselves. Right? We've got to protect ourselves. We've got to figure out how to survive this harsh, hard, broken place all alone. Now, in, in all of my saying this, please don't forget our point. What we bring to our planning. Because this is my argument. We all bring to our planning a sense of abandonment. A sense of aloneness. A need to fend for ourselves to our planning. Orphaned. And insecure, uncertain in this harsh world, we want to exert some control over our circumstances, right? So we plan and we strategize and we work hard to come up with the right goals and measures and markers that will protect us and keep us safe, that will will create a safer life for us, a better life, a happier life, uh, a life the way we think it should go. And that I'm... This, I'm arguing, is our very natural response and reaction to life. It's what we bring into our planning. But think about this. What if our very natural reaction to the brokenness of the world also happens to be the cause of the brokenness of this world? What if what we bring to our planning, this desire to control this broken life is also the cause of this broken life. This isn't a perfect illustration, but let me I'll just briefly tell you about the, um, the day I learned about hydroplaning uh, in my car. Um, it was three days after I got my driver's license when I was 16. And I begged my dad to let me take the family car out with my friends. And my dad was very unsure about it. He didn't want me to go. It had been raining all morning. Um, But I I nagged him to the point that he finally just gave up and said, fine, you can take your friends. Um, And we told him, we're just going to go to the 7-Eleven, and then we'll come right back, right? Um, And so, of course, after we went to the 7-Eleven, we didn't come straight home, like we told my dad. Um... We took a detour to experience our freedom, and uh, I'm not going to tell you what it was, because I don't want to give my kids any ideas, and this is being recorded, but um, we were going to do something. And uh, on our way, I took this right-hand turn in the, in the family car, and as soon as I took that turn, I felt the tires slip. You know, the back end of the car started fishtailing. Um, so, so what did I do? Um, did I 
calmly turn in the direction of the drift like the the study manual that I had studied, you know, to get my driver's license? No, of course not. Um, My sudden fear led to what I think was the most natural reaction, and I jerked that wheel around as hard as I could trying to regain control. And um, it's just such a natural reaction, trying to exert that control, right? Um, And the result was a disaster. I mean, we felt like we were on uh, some kind of ride in an amusement park. We were spinning all around the road, and finally we did a 180, and we swung through traffic, and we slammed up against this curb, knocked two tires completely off of the car, broke the axle, um, and um, I wasn't allowed to drive for a long time after that. Um, you ask my dad next time they come visit sometime. Um, it's not a perfect illustration, but, but listen, what if the natural impulse that we feel in life to, to control things, to, get, to control life is also the desire that leads to the brokenness of life? I mean, you think all the way back to Genesis, and the story of man's beginning, right? God put man in this garden and it was home for him. It was paradise. It was a world at perfect peace and harmony. But in this dangerous twist, man was tempted. And what was he tempted with? He was tempted to get out from under God's control. Tempted to be his own God. To grab the wheel as it were. And exert some control and be the one in control. And you know the story. The moment man grasped for that control, the world started to unravel and come apart at the seams. What was once a paradise was now a jungle of thorns and thistles. And all of a sudden, man was expelled from his home, the garden, and he was homeless, an orphan, a cosmic orphan, and an insecure dangerous and broken world. What we bring to our planning, it's more than just a natural reaction to the brokenness of the world. We also bring to our planning hearts that are broken, hearts that are bent on being in control, a desire to play God, to make life go the way we think it should go. All right, now, my hope is that what we've said so far about what we bring to our planning really sets us up and gives us some context for the next two points. So second, I want us to talk about the arrogant evil in our planning because that was James' concern in verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting, he writes, is evil. So what's so arrogant... And what's so evil about trying to exert some control in a broken world? Well, what's so arrogant is that we forget who we are. And what's so evil, James is saying, is that we forget who God is. So there's a theme that James has been weaving throughout chapter 4. Listen to chapter 4, verse 12. We didn't read this, but but he wrote, But who are you to judge your neighbor?" And then you listen to verse 14 of our passage. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Can you hear the theme in those questions? This is my paraphrase. James is saying, who the heck do you think you are? Right? Are we so arrogant 
that we have forgotten how powerless, how limited, how finite, how unknowing we really are. Listen, we live in a culture that foster, that truly fosters the arrogant forgetfulness of who we really are and what we really are. I mean, we're caught in the flow of a culture that says we can do and be anything we set our minds to. You've heard that before, right? So naturally, we think life is as simple as verse 13. Planning to go here, spending a year doing this or that, making some money and we'll succeed and make a profit, those kind of things. So we start thinking that getting our MBA and that promotion really was just the fruit of our planning and our ingenuity and our hard work. Or we think graduating college and getting that well-paying job was simply the reward of our smart planning, our dedication, and our intelligence. But was it really all that simple? I mean, the most important factors in any of our successes in life have always been things we had nothing to do with. Right, The country you live in, the family you were born into, the parent or parents you had, the school you attended, the neighborhood you grew up in, the opportunities that just happened to be available to you. Right, Really, the, the job, the MBA, the promotion were simply the rewards of our planning and hard work and all that stuff. What if you were born in Asia Minor in the 12th century? What if you grew up today in Africa under a dictatorship where your father made the average wage of a dollar a day? I mean, this is James' point. It's unbelievably arrogant to assume our lives and our successes in this life are anything but gifts to us. We so quickly forget who we are. Your life, James says, is a mist. You never know, you've never known what tomorrow will bring. But listen, James isn't one to mince words because he says there's also an element of evil in our planning. Verse 17 of our passage, it sounds kind of strange to our ears. It, it might even seem like, oh, I'm not sure how that fits with those verses. What does that have to do with this? James wrote, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin." So listen, if you know how powerless and how finite and how limited and how unable you really are to control life, but you still go about life and you go about all your planning and your strategizing with no reference to God, just forgetting Him, James says, that is serious sin. That is evil. The most fundamental root sin underneath all of our sins, it isn't breaking some rule. It's forgetting God. It's going about life as if He didn't matter. Living your life without any reference to His majesty, His power, His glory, His infinity, His grace, His mercy... To go about our lives and make decisions and and live in relationships and engage in our hobbies and entertainments and work and go about our lives without any reference to the God who made everything and sustains everything is evil, James is saying. For James, there's no other way to categorize it. 
To forget Him, that is the sin beneath every sin. Earlier we were talking about how quickly our hearts engage and empathy is stirred in us when we hear of a little girl who feels alone and missed and forgotten. Forgetting God? Why would that not also be a dagger in his heart? Over and over in the Bible, the constant refrain marking the evil of God's people was that they forgot him and they followed other gods. One of the first things the gospel writer John tells us in his book is in John 1.10. He's talking about Jesus. He said, he, that is Jesus, was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not know him. To live our lives and go about planning and forgetting God, living our lives without reference to Him, is to be deeply out of touch with the reality, James is saying. And it's evil. Now now listen, now before we move on to talk about how our planning can be redeemed, I want to ask a very practical question, which is, how can we tell when our planning has become arrogant and evil? Because the truth is, we all have to plan. It's part of life. But sometimes it's very, very hard for us to tell when we've crossed the line. So we need help diagnosing the evil and the arrogance in our planning. So if your computer isn't working or your car isn't working or your body isn't working, you go find a computer geek or you find a mechanic or a doctor or something like that. And you go and you explain the symptoms, right, to that person in the hopes that he or she will be able to give you a diagnosis, So what are the symptoms that are common to a diagnosis of an arrogant and evil uh, heart and planning? I'm going to do this very quickly so we can get to the last point, but let me give you four symptoms in our lives that are a result result of our arrogant, evil, and planning. Here they are. Bitterness, anxiety, depression, and envy. Just real quick. Bitterness. And anger that sours in your heart. Right into bitterness and resentment. Bitterness comes in, into our lives to the degree that we think we know what's good and best and right. And what our life should be. If we're bitter, we've forgotten who we are. And we've forgotten who God is. Anxiety, that fearful worry and dread about the future. Anxiety takes over our lives To the degree that we're afraid God's not going to get our lives right. We think we always know what's best. God has to fix this. He has to do that. If he doesn't, my life will be ruined. Are you anxious? You've forgotten who you are and you've forgotten who God is. Depression, despairing and feeling hopeless about life. And I'm not talking about a medical condition or a predisposition to melancholy or anything like that. I'm talking about the depression we feel over life's circumstances. When we become convinced that we have messed up our lives or that God has messed up our lives beyond repair. It's arrogant and evil. We've forgotten who we are and who God is. Envy, when your heart burns with jealousy over the successes or the gifts of others. You've set your heart on things you're convinced you should have in life. Things you think you deserve. You've forgotten who you are and who God is. 
That's just four symptoms. There are others. Bitterness, anxiety, depression, envy. Four symptoms that you can trace back to an arrogant evil and planning in your own life. And I don't give those to shame you because all of those are present in my life, by the way. But to show you how easy it is for us to miss this in our lives and for us to be really out of touch with reality, with who we are and who God is. Well, finally, we're going to end with talking about how our planning can be redeemed. See, James is writing this to call us back to reality, to lives that are shaped and planning that is shaped by truth and by grace. So James gives us two things in in these verses um, in order that our planning is redeemed. And not surprisingly, if you listen to the last point, the things he's telling us are we have to remember who we are and we have to remember who God is. We have to remember who we are. A while ago, I I was reading um, this book, and it it was talking about a long time ago when the Eastern Emperor was crowned at Constantinople, they did something very, very unique. When the Emperor was crowned, the Royal Mason was brought before the Emperor. And the Royal Mason would come and he would set before this new Emperor a, a, a vast number of these beautiful marble slabs. And you know why? It was to pick out his headstone. Right? They thought it was wise for him to remember his funeral at the very same time of his ascension to power into the throne. He may occupy an important seat, but he needs to remember, as James would put it in verse 14, he's just a mist that will soon vanish. Real humility is needed about who we are if we're going to be wise. We need to foster a true remembrance of who we really are. Let me give you one way you can do that. If you're a mist, and you are, um, and you have no real knowledge or control of what tomorrow will bring, then that means wherever you find yourself right now, whether you think those circumstances in your life are good or bad, You are where you are purely by the grace of God. Over and over, the biblical writers implore us in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The one thing we can do to help ground us to who we really are is to practice gratitude And thankfulness, no matter our circumstances, whatever they are, a true remembrance of who you are will begin to cure your heart of bitterness and anxiety and envy and depression that's a result of all this evil and arrogant planning we've been talking about. But we not only need to remember who we are, we also need to remember who God is. In verse 15, James, he wasn't saying, don't plan. He was saying, when you plan, When you plan, say this, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. One of my uh, favorite C.S. Lewis quotes uh, goes like this. He writes, our need love for God is in a different position because our need of him can never end either in this world or in any other. But our awareness of it can. And then the need love dies too. No matter who we are, 
We are dependent on God for everything. That's unchangeable. But you and I can forget how dependent we are. Right? We can be unaware and we can live without reference to God. And when we do, Lewis is saying, the need love that we have for God, it begins to die. James says, when you plan, do everything in reference to God. If the Lord wills, needs to be your thir- first thought, he's saying. I've read that the Latin equivalent of if the Lord wills, and by the way, I don't know Latin at all. I feel like I'm always saying the Latin word is, I just read these things in books and I'm told. Um, but um, the Latin equivalent of if the Lord wills is Deo Valente. And earlier Christians, they used to use that phrase very often in their writing and in their correspondence. And for a period of time, Christians used to sign all of their letters with the initials DV, Deo Valente, if the Lord wills. And it's kind of cool, but it also represents the danger here. Because James isn't giving us a secret incantation that's gonna, that we can use to bless all of our plans. He, he was writing about the posture of our hearts. A, a, a posture radically different from where we began this morning, trying to exert control over our lives. What James is talking about here is planning while at the very same time giving up control of your life and living in real submission before the God who loves you and who has brought you into His family. Taking our hands off of our lives. How do you do that? You remember who God is and you remember what God has done for you. In Jesus, you are homeless You are a cosmic orphan, but He came to bring you home. He came to adopt you and bring you into His family. A few years ago, I heard a story about a family that had been waiting for months to to travel to Eastern Europe to adopt a child. And they had been working with this agency, and so they they had seen all of his pictures, and they had read all his files that they had, and they knew his name was Victor, and they had been waiting for months to make this trip to go get him and bring him home and adopt him. And when they finally made it to the orphanage, it broke their hearts to see the living conditions there were, you know, to see the children there crammed into the, this tight, run-down space. You know, six beds jammed into this tiny little room um, but when they came to meet him, you know, they've been thinking about this, planning for this, and they came with all these gifts and these toys and this candy and stuff. And I mean, and he was ecstatic and he was thrilled, and they were too, right? Um, this was the day that they had waited for. But when it came time to leave, he ran away from these new parents. He ran away and hid, and they looked and they looked and looked. And eventually they found him hiding in this tiny little closet, clinging with everything he had to another little boy from that orphanage. And they tried to pry him free, and they just couldn't. He wouldn't let go. He was determined. And through the translator, they heard that he was saying over and over, I'm not leaving. And so finally they were able to communicate and ask him why. 
And so still clinging to this other little boy, he said, I'm not leaving without my brother. And so instead of bringing one child home, they brought two home. In Hebrews chapter 2, we're told that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Jesus, God's own son, he came and he wrapped himself around you. And he said, I'm not leaving without you. You're my brother. You're my sister, children of the living God. He united us to himself. And he said, I'd rather go to hell than lose you. And that's what he did. In your place and mine, he took hell for us. Because what was hell? He cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken for you. He experienced cosmic abandonment. Cosmic aloneness for you. His own father who loved him from all eternity turned his back on him. Why? I mean, that was Jesus' question. Why? Why have you forsaken me? I'm going to give you the answer that Isaiah gives us in Isaiah 53. He took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. He was smitten, afflicted, and pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. You and I, we are why He was forsaken. He took the thorns, the nails, the spear, the derision, the abandonment for us so that we would no longer have to fear being cosmic orphans. See, the key to redeeming our planning and all that stuff that makes makes up life, um, it makes life a broken place, is to remembering who we are and remembering who God is. He is the smiling God. He is the God who smiles over His dearly loved children. And, And listen, here's what I'm saying to you. To the degree, to the degree that you can take that into your heart, it will change you. To the degree that you can take your life, your hands off of your life, and rest and learn what it is to delight in His delighting in you. And smiling over you, it will change you and it will change the way you see life. It will shape everything about you. Even the way you go, doing, go, go about doing something we all have to do, which is planning. Because you're not an orphan anymore if you are in Jesus. Let's pray together.